Welcome to the Legal One podcast, brought to you by Legal One, the leader in school law training in the state of New Jersey. Legal One is part of the NJPSA and FEA family, so we are thrilled to be offering this podcast to you as a way to help you gain a greater understanding of critical legal issues. We want to provide you with convenient, easy access to essential information. In each episode, we're going to be reviewing critical legal principles based on case law, statute, regulation, or other key guidance. We'll talk about why that issue matters today and how the law has evolved. We'll talk about key steps in working with parents and other critical stakeholders to positively address the issues in question. And we'll give you more information. We'll give you resources so that you can access online courses and other events and know how to get a greater level of understanding of these issues. So let's get started. And thank you so much for joining us for the Legal One podcast. Welcome to this special episode of the Legal One podcast. My name is David Nash. I'm the director of the Legal One program. And I'm very pleased to have with me today, Dr. Teresa Taylor, who is the Director of Special Services for the Jackson Township Public Schools, and also chairs the NJPSA Special Education Committee and is a member of the NJPSA Mental Health and Wellness Committee. In a moment, I will ask Dr. Taylor to introduce herself in in more detail and share some of her background. We are recording this podcast today, one week after the horrific events in Uvalde, Texas. And unfortunately, uh, this is not an isolated incident. Um, We can all think about the string of tragic shootings that we have had in our schools, Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado, Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, Rob Elementary School, of course, in Uvalde, Texas, and so many others that haven't gotten the same level of attention but have been devastating for families across this nation. And in fact, this year alone, according to Education Week, there have been 27 school shootings as of the end of May of this year. It is an incredibly alarming pattern that we are seeing. And while, of course, there is no perfect solution to addressing this issue, there is no way to guarantee that we will not have future tragedies, there are concrete steps that we can take. And we at Legal One want to help all of you in the field understand some of the things that school officials can do to reduce the risk of future issues, to proactively identify students much earlier in this process and to potentially save lives. Uh, So today we're going to be focused on the issues of dual risk and threat assessment and helping school districts to understand that we can put in place protocols that will help us identify students who could potentially commit these acts in the future and allow us to proactively address these issues um, and perhaps prevent some tragedies uh, from occurring in the future. So as we begin uh, this important discussion, um, Teresa, I wanna thank you for being with us today. Um, And I would like to ask you to just take a moment to introduce yourself and talk about some of your experience. Thank you, David. I'm Teresa Herrero-Taylor. I'm the Director of Special Services in Jackson Township, as you mentioned. I'm also a licensed psychologist in the state of New Jersey, a certified school psychologist, and a doctoral level BCBA. 
I've been in the area of risk assessment and training for many years now, as the research started coming out in this country around school shootings and what are we learning from them. I really began to try to formalize a process for risk assessment, including consulting with forensic psychologists to try to fine tune it. Um, the field has actually progressed. Uh, there's more available to districts than there was when I first started looking into this and starting to formalize it and train uh, school staff. That's the good news that there is more known, more established, more accessible resources for schools. Currently, I am in the Jackson schools, as I mentioned, and we have launched a uh, threat assessment process within the district um, that is fully entrenched and underway. It continues to be revamped and improved over time as we learn information from school shootings. And I can talk a little bit about that, about how some of the changes we have made. Michigan was informative in that part of the process we've included that their uh, students won't have any personal belongings with them as part of that process when they're screened, um, just to ensure the safety of staff and students at that time. As you know, in the Michigan shooting that happened in, I believe that was October, October, November, in that school shooting, the student actually had his backpack with him and had weapons in there. So that's something all our threat assessment process always goes through administration prior to the launching of any screening, just to ensure that, that we're not going to repeat that mistake that Michigan did. So uh, let's step back for a moment and talk about some of the lessons that uh, we have learned from prior completed and averted school attacks. The U.S. Secret Service put out a comprehensive report in 2019 and a subsequent report in 2021 that talked about some of the trends and patterns related to completed and averted school shootings. And we, I do think there are some very important lessons that we can derive from those two reports. So Teresa, do you wanna uh, just talk a little bit about some of the things that emerge from those prior studies? Absolutely. Part of the process, um, I think first and foremost is the, the concept of dual threat assessment. I think most districts um, do suicide assessment. And if there's a threat, they notify the police and then kind of you know, make a referral that way. Dual threat assessment is really looking at both components of harming, either to self or to others every time. Obviously, if a student is, has brought a weapon, you're not going to necessarily conduct a threat assessment that will automatically go to the police. But in the context of behavior that might be threatening or an actual or a threat, we undergo a dual threat assessment. And then also just for students who present as potentially suicidal. We undergo both. In the past uh, school shootings and what we've learned um, mental health wise, there's a high correlation between suicidality and homicidality. As uh, to ignore one would be to leave a sense of vulnerability and not really understanding potential danger. So students are screened in both areas all the time. So that's a pretty critical change in the process that is really based on the information from a lot of the past studies and, and actually events of either averted school attacks or actual school attacks. Students sometimes engage in school violence as part of their own suicide. And I think people, if you're only focusing on harm to others and asking those questions, then obviously you might be missing something. I think another piece that's really critically important for schools to understand 
that threat assessment process is much broader than just asking someone if they have a weapon or do they have a plan. Most oftentimes, those are denied by individuals who might actually pose a threat to the school. And a lot of historically, that's what schools have based their understanding of threat on. Threatening behavior from, say, behaviors of concern, patterns of concerns are also problematic and may pose, that student may still pose a threat to your school. But part of it is, what do we, you know, how do we gather that information and what do we do with it once we have it? Ideally, threat assessment is really seeking to provide intervention to students so that it doesn't lead to more serious behavior. So all levels of risk are considered and interventions provided as much as possible to help address some of the emotional and mental health sometimes social and other factors that might be contributing to the risk factor for that student. So we do know from looking at that prior research that a majority of those who uh, have engaged in these horrific attacks did share information with somebody prior to engaging in that act, oftentimes with another student, uh, sometimes on social media, occasionally even with an adult or potentially a staff member um, in a school district. So in the majority of these cases, somebody had information in advance that there was this idea of an attack. How do we wrap our minds around this notion that we need to take that seriously? Kids say all sorts of things, and we have to assess all the time whether students are engaging in credible threats. And we do know that uh, that many times kids are sharing this information before they act. Absolutely. And that is a... A major component that's also been revealed from past school shootings in the great majority, upwards of 90 and upwards, even up to 100%, there's always been some pre-warning signs and uh, behaviors of concern. Leakage, which is the official t- term for what you were referring to, is very, very common. That could be done through social media. It could be done in a school assignment. It could be through telling someone. It could be done through a text. And very oftentimes, and obviously the attacks that actually happened, people knew but didn't do anything about it. Obviously, part of that is for the school teachers, if they see signs in writing assignments and drawings, that it's not ignored and that it's identified. This is what I was referring to before. Student may not have actually made a threat, yet still has to go through the process of threat assessment to determine if they pose a threat. And it is recommended through all the national research that's been done that schools not ignore that and you take action on those to do a deeper dive to see if something more is happening with that individual. That also means also sharing with students that they're not to ignore information either, that do they have a safe person to go to, who should they tell, how should they report this, you know, when we've had, you know, some incidents of, uh, say, students bringing guns to school or school events, you know, are they notifying people, how are they doing that, are they waiting, you know, it's nice that they are notifying um, staff, are they waiting and waiting until the guns are ready at school, for example, I know that happened in Lawrence Township. Obviously, 
early notice <laughs> is appreciated and the more in advance that, that occurs, but are we providing mechanisms for students to do so? You know, so those are all important components. And when someone does this, this is where the using a deeper threat assessment process that looks at uh, vulnerabilities and risk factors and protective factors to see if there's something behind whatever the child is doing, right, in terms of the leakage, whatever they're reporting access to weapons, wanting to hurt others, depending on what they're, you know, indicating or suggesting. So in so, a moment, we'll walk through the key elements um, that we know should be included in a threat assessment model based on research and best practices that are out there. But just to hone in on one aspect uh, of what we're discussing, many school districts, uh, thankfully, have done uh, great work in putting in place a suicide prevention program that includes for example, perhaps the Columbia Suicide Severity Rating Scale. And it is a research-based tool that has helped school districts identify students who are engaging in suicidal ideation. So can you talk a little bit about the idea that once we have a student who we are putting through that process, that um, as you said, even if the student hasn't explicitly expressed a threat of harm to others, that we look to do that uh, threat assessment as well? You know, possibly, you know, they come forward, there might be some indication, it might even be concerning behavior that um, it might be some indication in writing. But all of those are just a small kernel of the story of what's happening. The Columbia scale, we use that, that's embedded into our threat assessment process. But it requires students answering very directly, yes, I have a plan or no, I don't in order to be effective. Some of these other patterns, and it's still good practice to do. It doesn't mean we don't ask. You know, certainly we embed it. Sometimes you might have students who might actually indicate that. And, you know, oftentimes when it comes to school violence, usually they don't indicate. They're not going to usually tell you their plan. They've, it's usually methodical. They've been planning it for a long time many times months and it's they're not really want it spoiled necessarily right they want perhaps attention for it um they might you know this is which is what the leakage is about they don't necessarily want you to stop them so they don't usually share uh that information but the pattern of dynamics of other issues the you know history of bullying the poor coping skills the poor peer relationships lots of loss animal cruelty those components, the aggressive behavior, right? Do they have a, a, a pattern of being aggressive towards others, having a lot of those social conflicts? And those are really a lot of the different factors that they have found connected to future school shootings. Or I shouldn't just say, I'm going to say school violence, because it's not just guns. It could be clubs, it could be knives. School attacks have happened with many different types of weapons. But looking at those larger patterns of concern, are helpful in terms of understanding level of risk and the needs of the student as well in terms of intervention. So if a school district um, wants to pursue this further, wants to look at um, best practice and research-based models that are out there and begin this process, where should they get started? The FBI has put out a lot of different great resources. Um, some of them are put out by the National Threat Assessment Center the analysis of school attacks from 2008 to 2017. That's Protecting America School is the name of that reference. Averting Targeted School Violence is another one the National Threat Assessment Center just put out in March 2021. They put out a lot of updated current information 
And truthfully, it sounds similar. This is not new information. They've been collecting so much information over time. They're finding the same patterns over and over again, which is it's whether what are we doing to really listen to it and uh, do something about it. They actually have a threat assessment manual as well that they give guidance about how to implement threat assessment. So lots of great resources. It's really the implementation piece for schools. What are we doing with that? Are we just doing a Columbia scale for our suicide? Because we're really missing a huge part of what's happening here if we're just um, asking students questions about what their plan is and do they intend to harm anybody themselves or otherwise, you know, so there's so much more proactive information that could be gathered for you to, for you, the school, the district to really understand the students needs and the level of risk that they might pose at any one time. So of course, we will have available on the Legal One website links to these uh, reports that uh, we've been discussing from the Secret Service and some other wonderful resource documents that can help you get started in this process. Teresa, I know it can feel overwhelming. Uh, we have worked through uh, a three-year period like never before, working through a pandemic and all of the mental health issues that come with that. What do you say to districts that feel like we can't take on another major initiative given all the things that we're already being asked to do? I certainly understand that as someone who's in a district and... Uh, you know, certainly feels the emotional needs of students on the rise and of staff and the pressures of staffing and everything else. Um, I actually manage the district data in terms of risk and the different which schools have, you know, which ones are doing screenings, very high numbers of students, you know, having risk assessments done. It really comes back to this is a you really can't wait because right now you are really leaving your school and your district very vulnerable to potential acts of school violence that could have been prevented on some level. So it really became an imperative as I looked at our district data, understanding the increased risk of emotional needs of students and mental health needs, and also the social disconnection brought on by, by COVID, right? So it really, there's a vulnerability here. At the same time, we're asking teachers to pay attention to student needs when they're overwhelmed and you know, there's coverage issues and they're stressed out. So it really became a situation we didn't feel we could wait. This had to be done, especially because it's so challenging right now for students and for staff, that there had to be some focus on, hold on a second, um, our kids are hurting, what do they need now? How do we help them? So the focus is really on identifying risk, but it's also on trying to, you know, identify need for intervention and to do something along those lines. So as a process, it, you know, there are good tools, as I mentioned, that could help guide you in terms of what process to use. The one that's considered evidence-based is the Dewey Cornell model, which is, you can find it on Amazon, Comprehensive School Threat Assessment Guidelines. The next question is, how do you effectively implement that? That's nice to read a manual and print it out. It's very big. It's a lot of pages. Um, and how do you have that make sense in your school district? And it really begins with breaking down what your district's needs are. You know, who are your teams? What are the existing, you know, teams in your buildings that could help carry this out in a meaningful way? And then who do you need to train? And it should be obviously multi-layered, multi, -layered, multi 
because there's a lot of different uh, levels, administration, central administration, building administration, and then obviously the risk evaluators themselves. And then potentially even as you keep to go larger scale, nurses, teachers, other people who might be getting information around a plan, what should they be looking for? So there's different layers to multi-pronged, but it first starts with finding a model, adapting that model for your district, and then the considerations for training, which is obviously required. This is not the type of thing you can just hand someone and say, here you go, go complete this. It's understanding the purpose. How do you make it more fluent? That was, you know, we've done, we did a focus group recently for the risk evaluators and what were their thoughts on it? And how do we make this so it's not so laborious in the uh, assessment process with students? It's a lot of questions, right? And, and they're it does not- take, And I imagine it does take, um, you know, very strong leadership um, at both the school and district levels so that staff know that they are going to have support as they try to put all of this into place. Absolutely. And understanding the why. Why are we doing this? Right. Like, why are we asking all these questions? We never used to ask these questions before. Right. So understanding, you know, the pattern and, you know, that's been found. Why is it important to understand this and to know? And I think also, I, I think as schools, you know, what we found even in, in some specific cases is we had the kind of bias to just say, oh, no, it's okay. You know, they're no, no, no. It's, it, he said he was kidding. Right. It was just a joke. And then you kind of kind of look to take a deeper dive and you start to understand, oh, he's been doing the same joke over five years. Right. So it's not a joke anymore, is it? And then kind of other patterns of concern and other you know losses they might have had and other vulnerabilities there that, you know, really make you to kind of question whether it's really just a joke or really just OK. It's only through going through the process that you can really make that determination. Now, I know that sometimes there's a temptation if we do conclude that a student does pose a serious threat to others to think that simply removing that student from the school environment has resolved the issue. Can you talk about uh, the fallacy of that view um, that perhaps if we expel the student or put them just on home instruction or put them somewhere else that we've now solved the problem? So um, interesting, and one of the analyses that the National Threat Assessment Center conducted in November 2019, and it was looking at school attacks from 2008 to 2017, they actually talked about when students are out or removed that there is actually a higher chance of them engaging in school violence upon their, upon their return. And sometimes even there were two incidents out of the 17 that they looked at that actually happened while the student was suspended. So just removing them doesn't address the issue of why are they at risk? What are these factors that are happening to them? How can we help them and mitigate some of those risks so that they don't occur? In some cases, you're actually just giving them the opportunity and time to organize their methods and actually follow through with it. So it's really a misdirected sense of security just because they're there, that there is actually an association of breaks in attendance with actually committing school violence. And of course, um, school districts always have to keep in mind the due process rights of students. So if we do have good reason to believe a student may pose a danger to self or others, there are immediate steps we have to take to support that child and to protect everyone else in the school environment. But we also have to remember that that child and their parents have due process rights. 
So for example, if we have a student with a disability who we believe may pose a danger to others, while that student could be removed immediately, additional due process protections do kick in that school districts should be aware of. Absolutely. And the same is true, of course, for any student, if we are saying to that parent or guardian that the student is not allowed to be in school, even if we don't use the term suspension, if you are preventing that student from coming into the school environment, that means it is effectively a suspension for that student for the legal purpose of making sure their due process is protected. So that means, for example, a parent would have a right to a hearing before the Board of Education if a student is prevented from coming back to school for more than 10 school days. If it's a student with a disability, there is the right to an expedited hearing before an administrative law judge and an emergent relief application if, uh, in the state of New Jersey and similar processes in other states to make sure that a parent can raise any concerns they have about the district response and make sure that it is an appropriate response. So we want to make sure we do these things the right way. Absolutely. And I think, you know, a lot of our discipline policies and handbooks, you know, talk about, you know, suspension and the punitive measures with the understanding we may still need to follow our, you know, discipline guides, but at the same time, understanding that these measures, these punitive measures are not preventative. And uh, we have to also look at other needs of the student, you know, and are there these other risk factors that are perhaps contributing to the individual's risk for school violence. And what are we doing about those, you know, at, that, at this point? And that may or may not be part of a district's current practice. I think with COVID, a lot of districts have improved in the mental health area, but certainly upon re-entry, I see that as a critical time. Are we just going to say, okay, here's your contract. You're agreeing not to do anything. Okay, but what are we doing to actually assist the student to ensure that that happens? and that they're safe and other students and staff are safe. So I think that's a whole nother level of reflection for a district and perhaps analysis. What are we currently doing? How are we embedding this into our threat process? And what meaningful supports can we do? And do we understand the student enough to be able to do and offer something? I mean, that was um, before we instituted this process, I spoke to one of our risk evaluators who had screened one of our students. And I said, well, do you know what you want to include in a re-entry plan? She's like, I don't really know the student. And she had already screened him, you know, so that's not okay. Like we need to understand these students, understand what their needs are, because that from that understanding will come prevention and intervention that's meaningful. And we do, as you say, want to make sure we're not reinventing the wheel. We've got some incredible structures and systems in place already. Um, in the state of New Jersey, every uh, school district has to have in place intervention and referral service teams. We have districts across the country putting in place multi-tiered systems of supports. Um, so we want to build on those existing structures that we already have in place. Absolutely. You do not need to reinvent the wheel. Like you said, we have existing teams, you know, there's crisis teams and there's INRS in, in buildings, you know, MTSS systems that absolutely should be utilized in a way that helps support students who have all needs, not just academic, but emotional and mental health, social as well. 
So our goal today was to try to raise awareness um, about the importance of putting in place this system for a dual risk and threat assessment and to give some information about how to get started in this process. So Teresa, we know that these are, are very complicated issues and um, I do want to mention that we will be offering extensive training through Legal One to help school districts understand how to put all of this in place. So uh, listeners should look for more information about that training that we will offer uh, both in the summer of 2022 and during the 2022-23 school year. Any final uh, words of advice for those who um, are trying to grapple with all of these issues um, and do what they can to ensure a safe environment for everyone? Whenever we, every event happens, I think there's our hearts drop as school um, administrators, right? This is not why, why we're in schools. We want to keep our kids safe. We want kids to learn. We want to keep our staff safe. The only thing good that comes out of this is the, you know, this should prompt you to take a look at the practices within your district. We do know a lot about what to do to prevent. Is it being done? Can we do more? Can we do something perhaps more meaningful? How do we take what we're doing and take it to that next level so that it adds that additional intervention component for students or perhaps assessment level for students? I mean, that's really the, the, you know, our government has really spent a lot of time analyzing these, which I'm so thankful for in terms of the information. And as I said, when you look at these, you know, the publication date might be different, but the information is very similar. They're finding the same thing over and over and over again. And in the state of New Jersey, the four-prong threat assessment process that the FBI uses was noted as best practice in the state in 2006 but we're now in 2022. So what are we doing to sort of, you know, get our practices up to date and current with what has already been established to be best practice for many, many years? And what are we doing to really implement um, some of those uh, different practices and, and risk factors that we're being told um, are also important in determining uh, level of risk and, and um, need for intervention for students. I mean, that's really the walk away. If you're feeling helpless with these situations, you know, really reflect upon what proactive steps your district can do, because there are many, and take action along those lines. Um, there is a lot we can do, and it's really a not a punishment-based type of approach. It's a, a, an assistance, help, empowerment type of approach to really make a difference in the lives of all of our students and ultimately to keep everyone safe. Thank you, Teresa, for taking time for this incredibly important conversation today and, and just for the great leadership you have provided um, in the state of New Jersey to help um, address this and so many other issues related to meeting the needs of all of our students. Uh, so we, we at Legal One are just so appreciative um, of all the great work that you've been doing on all these topics. Likewise, David. <laughs> So thank you uh, to all of our listeners, and we do, again, encourage you to go to the Legal One website at www.njpsa.org slash Legal1NJ for additional information. We have a page with great information linked to each of our podcast episodes, and we will, on that page, have uh, significant additional resources to help you get started in this process. Thank you, everyone. Be safe, be well, and we look forward to having you with us 
on future episodes of the Legal One podcast. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you would like more information on the topics we covered, a full list of episodes, or a preview of upcoming topics, please visit our website at www.njpsa.org legal1nj.